I don't know if you've um, seen online, but there's, there's memes about two different types of people in the world. And so one of them would be um, people sitting in a dual climate car, and one side it, it has it set to 79 degrees, and the other side has it set to 62 degrees. And the meme says, and these people marry each other, right? And another two types of people are, there are people who pack six days before a trip and have it all in line and all ordered up. And then there are people who wake up the morning of, only to realize they need to do a load of laundry still. And those people marry each other, right? And so for Lucy and I, one of the biggest differences in, in our routine, it centers around television at night. Because when it's time to go to bed, she has no interest in watching TV. She just wants to go to bed. For me, if my mind is thinking, I can't fall asleep, so I like to put something on to shut my mind off. And so I'll put on a YouTube video, Ottoman Empire, something random that she has no interest in, two to three minutes, I'm out. Like, I'm done. I pat my mind shut, stop thinking. I pass out. I'm sound asleep. Lucy, on the other hand, gets locked in. She's like, I didn't even want to watch this video. Now I can't stop watching. I'm in. I'm learning history. Like, ah. And it's two different types of people and they marry each other, right? But for me, I say that because when it comes to falling asleep, that's what works for me, putting on a show that has nothing to do with anything else my day had to do with, and I can pass out. So for you, like, what is it that helps you fall asleep? For some people, it's a dark room. Maybe you have a weighted blanket. Um, some people like the fan spinning a thousand miles an hour, you know, that white noise sound. Other people have their, their essential oil mix, um, some people just pop a cup of melatonin and take a swig of NyQuil, whatever works for you, all right? Like there are some things that can just help you fall asleep. Well, spiritually speaking, Satan knows exactly what it takes to get you to go into a spiritual slumber. Satan knows exactly what, it need, what, what needs to happen for you to spiritually fall asleep, right? And so in Revelation chapters 12 through 14, what John, the author of the book, is doing is he's giving us a, a peek behind the curtain. He's showing us what's happening behind the scenes and how at all times Satan is at work trying to stop the church from advancing God's kingdom. And so he works um, in non-Christians' lives by trying to convince them that, they're, that they don't need a savior, that they don't need Jesus as their Lord, right? And he's at work in the lives of Christians by, by trying to get us to stay silent. And so he will silence us either through persecution or through comfort, right? And so here's what we need to know today, all right? God's primary strategy for reaching the lost, God's primary strategy for advancing his kingdom is through Christians sharing their faith. But if Satan can get us comfortable, complacent, indifferent, if he can put us into a spiritual slumber, it will render us ineffective in making that advance, right? And so that's what we're going to see today in chapters 13 and 14, all right? So let's jump into chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So there's a, a beast and a dragon, right? One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast 
And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Right, now this, this sounds like some crazy stuff. If you're reading this already, you're going, where's this sermon going, all right? So let me just back up a little bit. When it comes to reading scripture, we want to do so literarily, right? And so when you read historical literature in scripture, we assume it's literal unless forced to take it symbolic, right? But when you read prophetic literature, especially prof, um, apocalyptic literature, what we want to do is it's the exact opposite. When we read apocalyptic literature, we assume symbolic unless forced to take it literal. So this is a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of symbolic things happening in the book, especially when it comes to the dragon and to the beast, right? So what chapter 13 is doing is it is setting up for us a false trinity or a counterfeit God. And so you have this dragon who plays the part of a counterfeit God the Father, right? So the dragon is like God the Father, but it's his counterfeit, right? That would be Satan. So the dragon is symbolic of Satan. Now, the Father, God the Father, gives authority to his son, Jesus Christ. And now we have the dragon giving authority to this beast. Jesus had a mortal wound. He died on the cross and then he rose again. This beast has a mortal wound and this mortal wound is healed. So the beast is actually the picture of the counterfeit Jesus or a false Jesus. And so later we're gonna see a second beast, which would be a counterfeit Holy Spirit. But right now we're seeing that the first beast is ultimately what we would call the Antichrist. Okay, so the first beast is the Antichrist. And so now we have to ask the question, if, if the beast is the Antichrist, who or what is that beast, right? And so, so we're, as I said, it's, it's symbolic. It's not literal. I was talking to my kids today. They said, what are you preaching on, Dad? And I was like, the dragon. I was like, but it's not a literal dragon. It's not like a dragon in the movies, like Sleeping Beauty coming. Is it Sleeping Beauty? Yes, yeah, Sleeping Beauty, where the dragon, not, that's not a real dragon, okay? It's symbolic of something, right? So who or what is the beast? For us, we think crazy things, like it's going to be a dragon coming out of the sky, or it's going to be crazy. But for, for the person who knows the Old Testament, for the person who's read the, the prophet Daniel, this wouldn't be surprising or crazy. It would actually be expected. So let me explain. If you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it's, it's following the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. The king of Babylon is King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar has a crazy dream of this massive statue, and it's made up of different precious metals, right? And he doesn't know what it means. And then Daniel interprets the dream, and he shows him how these precious metals are actually representing different kingdoms, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Greece, and eventually the kingdom of Rome, right? So these, these precious metals are kingdoms. Now, a little bit later in the book, Daniel has a dream, not Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel. Daniel dreams about these four kingdoms, the same four kingdoms, but he does not see them as, as precious metals. He sees them as wicked beasts, right? And so what that shows us is that there are, there are governments, there are nations, there are kingdoms that from an earthly perspective are attractive. We see them and we're drawn to them because they promise prosperity. They promise protection. They promise um, identity. They promise um, all types of things. And so we're attracted to them. But if we could see behind the curtain, if we could see what they really are, they're operating with animalistic instincts. They're actually working in a way that pulls our hearts away from God. So for the book of Daniel, the beast is not a literal beast. 
It's a kingdom. And the fourth beast, which has 10 horns, is ultimately the kingdom of Rome. So we can look at that, apply it to Revelation, and all of a sudden we see who or what is the beast? The beast is the nation of Rome or the empire of Rome. Now, when it comes to like, okay, so Jeff, that, is that symbolic, right? So let me break this down. There are three views for what Rome means. For some people, they would say this is Rome of the past and that revelation has already occurred for the most part. Others would say this is a future Rome, that there is going to be a resurrected Roman empire or one world government that will rise up before Jesus' return. And a third option is that Rome is actually representing all types of kingdoms that have existed and will exist until Jesus' return. That Rome is just symbolically showing this is what government systems, um, this is how Satan uses them throughout all of history. So I would say that the first beast is, based, is it's showing us how Satan leverages governments or nations or kingdoms, how Satan leverages governments to pull our hearts away from God, right? So when you're like, what is the beast? The beast is Satan leveraging governments, nations, or kingdoms for the purpose of pulling people's hearts away from God, right? So that's the first beast. It's Satan leveraging governments. Jump down to verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So a second beast. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it's like the voice of the, the counterfeit God the Father. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That's a lot, but let's just kind of keep this in the context of the counterfeit trinity. The dragon is a counterfeit God the Father. The first beast is the Antichrist. The second beast is a counterfeit Holy Spirit, which means the first beast leverages power. The second beast comes and supports that power from a spiritual angle, right? So the first beast is Satan leveraging governments to pull people's hearts away from God. The second beast is Satan leveraging the church to support that government. That's scary. Like, you're like, oh, the beast is freaking me out. Like, I don't get freaked out by the beast. I get freaked out by the thought that Satan could leverage the church to support a government that is ultimately existing to pull people's hearts away from God, right? So I'm about, I'm about to get in some trouble here. This is where, like, some people are like, this is what I come for. Like, get me the popcorn. Like, Jeff's about to say something dumb. This is me. I'm about to make some people upset. And so what I'm going to do in our staff meetings or our elder meetings, we will often, if we're going to say something that we're like, I don't know how this is going to be received, we ask for everybody in the room to give us an umbrella of mercy. So what I'm asking right now is, can you guys, can you guys give me an umbrella of mercy? Because I'm going to say some stuff, but it needs to be said. I would say this is a prophetic word that the church needs, right? So before I jump into this umbrella of mercy, let me clearly define my terms. I'm going to say a left-leaning church and I'm going to say a right-leaning church. What I mean by those terms is as Christians, we should have a focus on God's kingdom. But 
when we become more um, shaped by and, and kind of occupied by the left, right, by, by like the democratic side of things, then by the kingdom of God, we become a left-leaning church. And on the other side of that, when we become more occupied and concerned with things of the Republican Party than the kingdom of God, we become a right-leaning church, okay? So let me say this. Satan leverages left-leaning churches to pull people's hearts away from God. How does he do that? Here's how Satan leverages left-leaning churches. He gets them to take what God has clearly called sinful, and he makes it seem normal. He, he gets a church to take what God calls holy, and he gets it to believe that that holiness is now weird. And so, so the left-leaning churches take things that God has clearly defined as sin. The left-leaning church takes things that breaks God's heart, and he basically makes those things where we accept them, then we, we, then we celebrate them. So there's kind of this movement. We tolerate, then we accept, and before you know it, we are celebrating. And when a church does that, it's leading people away from God's heart, right? And so we're seeing this play itself out right now. Like I would say, if you, if you read religious news, we have witnessed one of the largest Protestant denominational splits in history because Satan has been leveraging left-leaning churches to take what God calls sinful and to make it not only accepted, but even celebrated. Like this revelation isn't just about what will happen, it's about what always happens. So right now, Satan is at work through left-leaning churches to pull people's hearts away from God. Now, I understand we're in Johnson City, Tennessee, and so the vast majority of people right now are like, amen, like I'm with you, Jeff, like curse them left leanings. Let's go right. Let's go right, okay? Here's how Satan leverages right-leaning churches. Satan leverages right-leaning churches by creating an indifference towards those who are in need. He leverages right-leaning churches to justify inactivity to people who are image bearers of God and who are broken and are hurting and in desperate need of help. And you're like, how does that look? Let me, let me tell you. Um, let's go to the border, right? You go down to the border and all of a sudden there's like a humanitarian crisis. Now, I am, I am pro legal immigration. I am pro securing the border. But when we become more concerned with protecting our border than caring for the people that are actually there, like we have begun to become more shaped by the party than we have by the kingdom of God. So I'm not saying don't support like our country. Jesus was actually pro-Israel. He was pro his country. It's okay to be for your country, but we have to have a greater concern for God's kingdom. So whatever your stance is on the border, we know that there are people on the ground who are hurting. There are, there are children, there are women, there are men who are image bearers of God who don't have basic needs. And if we become so caught up in securing the border that we no longer see them as who they are, we are being used in the hands of Satan to be leveraged against God's kingdom, right? Another way this plays itself out is you look at Israel and Gaza right now, right? Like some people are like, okay, Hamas is evil and we need to rid the world of this terror. Is that wrong? No, but this, this quote, justified war that is leaving um, people drinking toilet water because they don't have basic needs, like there are thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people who are homeless, who have been displaced. And if we're like, 
we're, we're pro-Israel, we're going to support them, and we just kind of lose, a, lose sight of or now have a blind eye to the fact that there are children and women and men who are creating them into God and are hurting, like we have begun, began to be a church that's more shaped by the right than by the kingdom of God. You see, this is, this is a both and. Satan is leveraging left-leaning churches, and he is leveraging right-leaning churches to, 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 to try to stop the kingdom of God from being advanced. And so when it comes to helping the poor, let me, let me read some verses that, that should haunt you if you have become more influenced by the right than, than by the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus says. These are his words to people that he has never been served by. These are people that have never served Jesus. And here's what he says. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Like those words should haunt us. Like we, as the church, if we're going to be not a left-leaning church and not a right-leaning church, but a kingdom-focused church, we will be a church that first holds the line on holiness. We, we, we unapologetically call sin what sin is. We don't tolerate it. We don't accept it. We don't celebrate it. We hold the line on holiness, but we simultaneously will have a helping hand and a heart to care for those who are hurting and in need, right? And if we, if we cease to do either one of those things, we become a church that Satan is effectively at work within, right? You're like, Jeff, I was gonna email you, but now I'm not sure, right? Either way. <laughs> You can put the umbrella of mercy up. You can close that thing. I'll, I'll, I'll take the rest of the shots from this point forward. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going in Revelation. Picking up in verse 16, it says, Also, it causes all, this is the, the second beast, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. So this is talking about the mark of the beast. Can we, can we play a little game? Um, is it the mark of the beast, right? Because you see this in the news. You see this from, from different type of um, organizations, like it's the mark of the beast. Um, some people think that the mark of the beast was social security cards. Like there it is. Other people believe it was barcodes. When we put barcodes um, kind of on things that we purchase, some people think that it's Apple. Like you're like, look at that iPhone, mark of the beast. You know, everyone's holding their, their, their Go Android. I don't know. I want to turn a text message green, right? Like, like whatever it is. Um, other people think it's vaccines, specifically the COVID-19 vaccine. So some people are like, this is it. This is, you're getting marked by the beast if you get the vaccine. Let me just say, like, I don't think any of those things are the mark of the beast, all right? So when it comes to the mark of the beast, there are three options, or at least three options. The first option is that it is, it is a literal mark, like a tattoo, that people are being tattooed by this mark of the beast, a second option is when you look at um, the Hebrew language, right? So the Bible is written mostly in Hebrew and Greek. When you look at the Hebrew language, there are no numbers. There's no number system. So they take letters in the alphabet and give them numerical value. 
So if you take the, the, the Hebrew numerology and calculate what, what, are the, what are the letters add up to for the name Nero Caesar, guess what it comes out to? 666. So some people say this is, this is actually Nero. This is, this is, the mark of the beast is, is Nero from the empire of Rome. And then a third option, and this is, I'll show my cards, this is what I believe. All right, the third option is that this is figurative language. This is figurative language for what marks a person who has different loyalties, identities, and purposes than that of Jesus Christ. Right? So it's, I believe this is figurative language for what marks a person who has a different loyalty than Jesus. And so what's interesting is um, in the Bible, numbers have meaning. So the numbers three and seven are both numbers of completeness. Okay, Three and seven, both numbers of completeness. So you have 666, three times, that means complete. But six is one less than seven, which means incomplete. So I believe the number 666 is symbolically showing us that a person who does not know Christ, a person who is seeking their identity, their value, and their security in anything other than Jesus, they will always be completely incomplete people. Like you will always have this this eternal shaped hole in your heart that can only be filled through relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? So the 666, I believe, is symbolically showing that we are completely incomplete if we do not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. All right, moving on to, to chapter 14. Um, so just kind of a more technical thing here. Um, chapter 13, I believe, is talking about what happens throughout all of church history. So this, I think that the way that the dragon and the beast are at work from Pentecost until the day that Jesus returns is shown to us in chapter 13. Chapter 14 shifts. It's not showing us what is happening currently. It's showing us what happens when Jesus returns. So chapter 14 shifts to final judgment. So chapter 14 is now future looking. So verses one through five, we see a picture of Jesus standing with a great multitude of people and they're worshiping God. Then we get to verse six and it says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. Take take note of that word gospel. To proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment, take, take note of that word judgment, has come and worshiped him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, so what this is showing us in verse six and seven is that one, judgment has come. So this is talking about final judgment. And it says that when final judgment comes, that it will be gospel for us. The word gospel means good news, right? So this means is when Jesus returns for final judgment, it is good news for those who are in Christ. It is good news for the Christian because for us, that means that Jesus is now gathering us to himself. It means that for, for those who are in Christ, that God is going to heal the broken parts of our lives. He's going to take where we feel empty and make us feel full. He's going to take every tear and wipe it away. He's going to take everything that's wrong in the world and he's going to make it right. Like this is good news for the Christian because we will be gathered into the eternal presence of God's grace and love. But... This is bad news for those who are not in Christ. Listen to verses 8 through through 11. It says, Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This is really unpopular, but what Scripture teaches us is there are only two eternal destinies. For the Christian, we will be in the eternal presence of God's grace and love, but for the non-Christian, you will spend eternity in the presence of God's justice and wrath. And, when, and so some people get caught up on the whole like lake of fire sulfur thing. Like, is this literal or is this symbolic? Um, I believe it's actually symbolic. And some people might be think like, good, good. But I would say it's symbolic in that human language here is being stretched and ultimately falls short of what God wants to communicate, right? And so what we see here is like, it's actually probably much worse. It's probably much worse, all right? So, so here's what we see. When we, when we think about eternal torment, eternal torment for those who are in Christ, it's so easy for us to go, that does not seem fair. It's so easy for us to even get mad at God and go, I can never worship a God who would punish someone for eternity for mistakes they made or sins that they committed in a short span of their lifetime. That just seems, it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. And, and like, look, I get it. Like those things, those are hard to wrap your mind around. But here's the problem. We are finite people trying to understand an infinite God, all right? And if our minds could begin to wrap themselves around the heights of God's holiness, if we could see God for how holy he truly is, and if we could begin to wrap our minds around the depth of our sinfulness, right, and, the, and the, the, the effect of sin in this world and in our lives, if we could see the gap between the two, which we can't, but if we could, all of a sudden, eternal torment would seem to make sense and to be, seem to be the most justified thing we could understand. But because we struggle, we're like, man, I don't know what to do with this. And I would just say, look, we want to bank on the Word of God more than our heart's desires. And so we might desire for this thing to be different, but we're gonna, we need to bank on this is what God's word says and this is what's true, right? And so there are only two destinies, eternal grace and love or eternal justice and wrath. If you read the rest of the chapter, it gives us imagery of two harvests. The first harvest is Jesus gathering people to himself, those who are in him, right? And the second harvest is him casting people out to this utter darkness, to this, this eternal torment, right? So so that's where eternity is heading towards, okay? One of those two destinations. So what do we do with this, right? Like if, if we're trying to unpack Revelation 14, like what do I take from this today, right? I want us as a church to ask the question, what am I being marked by? Like, like I think it was, we read this text, specifically chapter 13, we need to walk out of this room today having contemplated and having, having thought deeply on who or what am I being marked by? 
Am I, being mark, am I being marked by the philosophies, values, identities, and agendas of this world? Or am I being marked by a pursuit of God's heart and a pursuit of personal holiness? You see, the first, being marked by the world's values and identities and philosophies, etc., the first will only leave you completely incomplete but the second will make you eternally secure, right? And so, so for me, as I think about our church today, like I, I think there's something for non-Christians and Christians to know. If you're here today and, and you're like, hey, I'm not a Christian, I want you to know that Satan is working his hardest and doing everything he can to keep you from believing that you need Jesus, that's his ultimate goal, just to keep you convinced that you're doing okay or that you don't need him, that you can somehow make your way to God on your own. And he'll do everything in his power to make you believe you do not need Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I want you to hear this from me. That is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. But the truth is, I believe you're here because God's after your heart. I believe that you are here because God is after your heart. And I don't know if it's going to happen today. I don't know if it will happen next week or in the days or years to come, but there will be a moment when you're not going to be able to explain it because it's the Holy Spirit at work, but you're just going to go, it's all true. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. I've been here. I've been wrestling, but it's true. And like, that's the damn long, I love it. In the first service, there's a girl that came back just in tears and we prayed over her, we talked to her, and it was the day that she goes, it's all true. And I was like, I was sitting back, I was like, hell lost another one. Like, right, like, like, I was like, right now, according to Luke 15, angels are rejoicing in heaven because someone has given life to Christ. I'm telling you, right now, if you're here today, God's after your heart. You don't have to wait, you can put your faith in him now, That's right. all right? But for the Christian, here's what you have to understand. Satan is trying to silence you. And if he is not trying to silence you through persecution, that means he is trying to silence you through comfort. It's one or the other. So you ask the question, am I being persecuted right now or am I being comforted right now? And my hunch is, is that the vast majority of people right now, Satan is at work trying to silence you through comfort, through complacency, through indifference, through putting you into a spiritual slumber. So here's how this works. Here's how Satan maneuvers. I'm just going to give some different examples that might touch on different people in the room. But for one is like, I know so many of our college girls that, that are in relationships with non-Christian guys. And so here's what happens is, is the Holy Spirit speaks and says, hey, you've got to end this. This guy is not leading your heart towards me. Um, he's, he's leading you to do things physically that you said you would never do. You've got to break up with him. And then Satan comes in through his lies and his deception and says, you're his only chance at salvation. If you leave him, then, then he's hopeless. You need to stay in this. And you go like, you're right. Like, I can't, I can't break up with him because I'm the only Christian he knows. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it out. And all of a sudden, it's like the lights in your room have been turned dark. For others, you know, it could be material things where God's saying, I've given you enough. Like, I've given you enough. Now take all the excess and give it away. Just cap your lifestyle and be as generous as possible. Leverage everything you have to help more people know Jesus. And then Satan comes in and goes, oh, but you deserve, you deserve more. And look at them. They're enjoying it and they don't deserve it, but you do. Like, 
hey, don't cap your lifestyle. And all of a sudden, it's, it's like the ceiling fans going 1,000 miles per hour. That white noise is just humming in the background. For some, it might be God saying, hey, get a hold of this sin in your life. Like this sin that you're living in, it's tearing you apart and you can't see it. And then all of a sudden, Satan comes in and says, hey, other people's sin hurts people. Yours doesn't hurt anybody. And in fact, you can manage it. Like, I think you're doing pretty good. Like, you're actually able to keep it in a, in a controlled fashion. So don't, you're okay. And all of a sudden, it's like the essential oil mix of lavender starts to go. And you're just like... Right? And, and, and there's, there's so many other things we could show here, but, but what's happening is Satan is doing exactly what he needs to get you to become comfortable, complacent, and indifferent so that you will become a Christian who's living in a spiritual slumber. And when you live in a spiritual slumber, you'll be rendered ineffective for advancing the kingdom of God. Think about this. Let me, let me close with this. Let's say that, that someone offers you a trip of a lifetime. It's, it's a quick trip, but a trip of the lifetime. They said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you a first-class plane ticket, right, to Rome. First class. Like you're going to sit in the big front seats where you can recline. It's great. Like, we're going to get you to Rome. Because we spent so much on the plane ticket, though, um, you're going to stay in a hostel. So just a, but it's a bed to sleep in. You're going to be there for, a, like, just a day. So you got your bed, shared shower situation. So don't even worry about showering. Like, but, but, then, but then when you get there, We've got it all set up. We're going to give you your personal tour guides, the best historians, the best storytellers. And we're going to give you a pass. And this pass makes you be able to jump in front of every line. You just walk to the front of the line and you're in and you get backstage access. And we're going to take you to the Colosseum. We're going to take you to the Pantheon. We're going to take you to the Sistine Chapel and to the Vatican. And we're going to, we're going to just give you the trip of a lifetime. All the gelato and pizza that you can imagine just in your belly, right? Like you imagine you get this trip and you get to Rome, and you get to that hostel, and you're like, this bed does seem pretty comfortable. And you lay down, and for the day that you should be traveling one of the most beautiful historic cities in the world, you spend it sleeping. It's like your time in Rome is too short to spend it sleeping in a hostel. The life that God has given us to live is too short in the life of eternity to spend it in a spiritual slumber. May we not give in to Satan's work to put us to sleep. Instead, may we endure. Listen to the words of John in verse 12 of chapter 14. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. May we be a church who endures. May we be a church who does not give up, who does not give in, but keeps our faith in Christ. May we be fully awake and fully alive. God, thank you for your word. As we wrestle with complex things from apocalyptic literature, I ask that you would help it to make sense to us in a way that we can put it into action. And so, God, I don't know where you're working right now, but I know you're working. So the person who feels that maybe they've become more consumed by and shaped by a political party, God, would you give them a renewed heart for your kingdom? Give them the ability to, to see their party with a critical lens. God, for those who don't know you yet, God, I believe that you are after their hearts. And so, God, I ask that you would do a work of salvation right now in this room. 
that you would begin to allow your truth to speak louder than Satan's lies, that you would lift the veil over their, their spiritual eyes, and that, God, that you would allow them to see you as true this morning. God, they would see that you, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life we could never live, that they would see that you died the sinner's death that we deserved, and you rose again, and that because of the gospel, we are fully forgiven, and we will be forever loved. God, help them to know you as Lord and Savior today. God, for those of us who are sleeping spiritually and living in comfort, God, would you wake us up that we might be leveraged by you to advance your kingdom and to combat the gates of hell that are at work. God, do a work in our churches only you can. In your name we pray. Amen.